Well, we're just saying that God's word is strong and faithful and true. God keeps his word, and that's the reason we can even come today uh, to hear his word. First, we were able to sing praises to God. What a privilege. And now we get to open up our Bibles. So please take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. And when you find that, please stand with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. We're talking today about the conscience. The conscience. Hebrews 9 and verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. And this is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a gold jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But when these things had been prepared, the priests were continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second only the high priest enters once a year. Not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. That the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. Which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Lord God, thank you for your word. We pray you would speak to our hearts this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And please be seated. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Today I want to focus on the conscience. Conscience is the moral awareness of good and evil. Pinocchio had one. It assumes the moral obligation, therefore, to do what is right. To do what is right. A clear conscience is something God gives. It's not something that we bring about. Now, some of you here are tormented by things you have done in the past. Your conscience continually condemning you for things you have done. Even things that you have uh, turned from. Sins that you committed and confessed to God and stopped doing. Your consciences are still uh, tormented by those sins. Others of us are hardened in our conscience. 
we don't even notice anymore and that we are now involved in things that are not pleasing to God but we don't even know because our conscience is what the Bible calls seared. I want to show you three primary truths this morning relating to serving God with a clear conscience. We all want a clear conscience. We all want to be able to sleep at night. We all want to be able to be at rest in, in God's presence and in the presence of others. So let's talk about the conference, conscience. I want to focus mostly on the third point today, but it's built upon the first two. So we're going to blow through the first two rather quickly. But first of all, I want to share this. What God desires is for us to approach him. God desires for us to come into his presence. You even see this in the New Testament with Jesus offering uh, an invitation to us in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus invites people to come to him, and God desires for us to approach him, to approach him. God wants us to come to him with a clear conscience in worship, not just once a week, but every day with all we are, with everything we have, offering ourselves to him for his purposes, for his glory. That's what God desires. Now, in the first covenant, God specified a certain place and a certain way to worship him, to come before him. And we see this in the tabernacle. But the tabernacle that we see in verses 1 through 5 was temporary. It was a temporary structure. It was camping equipment. It was a tent. They moved it all over the place in the wilderness. It was not meant to last forever. And either was the temple. Solomon's or Herod's, those, those weren't meant to last forever either. Those were temporary. They were temporary and they were, gave a beautiful picture of a coming Messiah. In Hebrews chapter 8, what we looked at last week, there was a brief intro into the heavenly tabernacle and into the sacrifice and into how the old covenant is superseded by the new covenant. And it's now starting in chapter 9 verse 1 and really going to chapter 10 verse 18, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's showing in detail the specific ways that Christ's sacrifice for sin is better than the old way, the old sacrifices offered by the old covenant priests. And so what he's going to do in this next two chapters is bring his discussion of Christ's priesthood to a fitting conclusion. Chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Even the first covenant had regulations. It had ordinances regarding worship, regarding ministry, regarding the service towards God. And under that first covenant, there was a tabernacle, we see in verse 2. And it was prepared. And, it, and now we, we see some, some furniture that goes in the tabernacle. What does it look like? What was it built like? Uh, there was a holy place. And in that holy place was a lampstand. It was a Jewish menorah with uh, a center uh, stick and then three branches on either side. And each side, at the top, there was a budding uh, flower that would hold the lamp. It was the lampstand that was there. And then... In, that tabern- in the tabernacle, there was a place, verse 3 tells us, behind the veil. Behind the veil. If you picture, in your, some of your Bibles, you have a picture of the, ta- the uh, wilderness tabernacle. It uh, looks like a, a fence around a fort, in a way, and then a, a rectangle. And then you've got, in the middle, the, the uh, holy place. But there was the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And there was a, a veil, a curtain, between the two. 
And so there was this holy place with the lampstand. There was the tabernacle. And then behind the veil, there was the second curtain that separated the outer room from this holy of holies. Uh, in the Greek, it, it, the, the Greek word for holy is, is put twice. Holy, holy. It's a holy, holy place. It's the most holy place. And it was the place you could not go unless you were the high priest. And you could only go there one time a year. Inside the Holy of Holies, verse 4 tells us, there was a golden altar of incense. Uh, it could have been a, a, an incense shovel or a holder. Uh, there was the Ark of the Covenant. If you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what it looks like. But there was the Ark of the Covenant containing uh, a golden jar of manna, reminding them of God's provision for them in the wilderness. There was Aaron's rod that budded. And there were the ta- tablets of God's covenant, of God's law. Above the Ark of the Covenant, verse 5 tells us there was the cherubim of glory, the, the carriers of the Shekinah glory of God. And they were overshadowing the mercy seat. And there were these two figures. They were made of beaten gold. They were standing on either end of the mercy seat, facing inward with their wings coming to the middle, stretching out, overshadowing this mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was a slab of pure gold. And it covered the very top. It fixed exactly over the very top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Greek word for mercy seat, helasterion, is used to designate this throne. This throne of mercy above the Ark. The New Testament counterpart is the throne of grace that we have already seen in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. That we are able to come boldly to the throne of grace because we have this high priest, Jesus. But the word is translated... uh, The mercy seat word is translated propitiation in Romans chapter 3. Here's what it means. It means to make atonement or reconciliation through covering. Through covering our sin. It means to get rid of the sin that is in the way of God and man. That stands between God and man. Now the writer of Hebrews says this in verse 5. Now concerning these things we can't speak in detail. It's not that he couldn't. It's that that, that wasn't his point. What, the point he's trying to make is there were two parts. Two parts of the holy place. And one you couldn't go to. And so he gets to his point. Basically, God desires for us to reproach him. But there is a problem that we have inherited. We've inherited this problem, but we also have to own the problem ourselves. And it's that our sin fights against God's standard of righteousness. God has set up this Even in the Old Testament, this tabernacle picture all aimed at coming to him, approaching him, holy God, sinful people, approaching him. And our sin, though, fights against that standard of righteousness. Even the standard of righteousness that was set up in the Old Testament. And therefore, we live with a guilty conscience. We live with either a guilty conscience or no thought of God. The old system was put in place to expose sin and to expose a need for a savior. And it had very specific requirements. And I want to make one comment about this before we go on to the next point. It would be very easy to see this picture and to, and to think, wow, how hard and, and tough and commanding God was to his people. But I believe that's an inaccurate picture of this scene. It's an inaccurate picture because I believe a more accurate understanding of the forms and formality of the old priestly worship shows us the love of a creator whose children have rebelled and have run into the dark night and have cannot find their way back home. It's a picture of a loving heavenly father 
who has provided for his children over and over again. But they have rebelled defiantly and have run off out into a dark night. And they turn around and they can't find their way back home. And all the temple, the tabernacle, all of that centered around movement towards God. Movement towards Him. Next, what we see is that God was very specific about how we're to approach Him. Because what God desires is for us to approach Him, but what God requires is holiness. He requires holiness. In Exodus chapter 15 and verse 11, we read these words, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? In Leviticus, in Leviticus, in chapter 11 and verse 44, God said this, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make for yourself unclean with any swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is what God requires. And then you've got Habakkuk 1.13, which says to God, Your eyes are too pure to look and approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. God requires holiness to come into His presence. And so in verse 6 of Hebrews 9, we see that when all the tabernacle had been set up, and they had to set it up again and again and again, and it was a dusty place and a dirty place, and actually uh, a lot of animals were killed in that place, and so it wasn't as clean and pristine as we might think. But they would come to this place, they would set it up, and everything was ready, and the priests would then go do their job. They would do their thing. They were continually entering and then performing the divine worship in the holy place. And the emphasis, though, in this verse, they enter the outer tabernacle. They perform the divine worship. The emphasis in this verse is on the inaccessibility of the the holiest place. You could not go there. Uh, The holy of holies. There was the continual openness of the outer tent and the inaccessibility of the inner tent, the holy of holies. Verse 7 tells us that only the high priest went in. We know that. And once a year he came in, but he could not come in all alone. And he, I mean, by himself, empty-handed. He had to come in with something in his hands, and it had to be blood. It had to be blood to pay the penalty for his sins and for the sins of the people. In fact, the, the word in verse 7 that says that he offers for himself and for the sins of the people points to substitution. That that blood was substituting itself in their place, paying for the sin before God. It points to the substitution of Jesus in our place on the cross. It says that he offered that for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Committed in ignorance. No one wants to be called ignorant, but it points to inadvertent sin, not defiant sin. Unintentional sin versus sins that are committed deliberately in rebellion against God. And we know the difference, don't we? We know when we, when we sin and we think, oh, boy, and, and the Holy Spirit convicts us and we think, I should not have done that, we confess it. But we also know of the kinds of sins that we walk bold-faced in, knowing when we say, I know this is right, but I am going to do this. 
And so the priest was offering sacrifice for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. These unintentional, inadvertent, not defiant sins. In verse 8, we read that the Holy Spirit is given a message. Whenever you read something like that in the Bible, we got to take, take note. we got to sit up and listen. The Holy Spirit is signifying? Well, what is the Holy Spirit trying to say? You know, the Holy Spirit was not only the author of the Levitical system, but also its interpreter. And now the, it says the Holy Spirit's telling us exactly what it was all about. The Holy Spirit has a lesson to teach us here, as he does in all parts of Scripture. So what specific lesson does he want to teach us? Well, this is speaking of the Day of Atonement, that one day a year when the, whole, the high priest would go. So what message in regards to the Day of Atonement is he giving? It's this. The Old Covenant had a built-in barrier. It had a built-in barrier. The barrier to God. There was no direct access to God, and there was therefore no lasting assurance of forgiveness in the Old Covenant. There was therefore no clear conscience. See, the way here in verse 8, the way into the holy place means the way into the holy of holies, which was barred by the inner veil, by this veil in the temple. And the first tabernacle is the holy place. And as long as that first tabernacle was still in effect, there was no entrance into the presence of God on a continual basis. It was closed. So the division of the tabernacle into two spaces showed the limitations of the Levitical priesthood. It showed that the holy place barred both the priests and the people from the holy of holies. Why? To show them their need for a savior. The savior that was promised in, in Genesis. The savior that was promised to all the, the people of faith throughout every age. Abraham. He believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. Any of the Old Testament people, Abraham, David, whoever, that were saved, it was through faith in a coming Messiah. The division of the tabernacle, though, showed that it was to point them to the promised Savior, not to something they could do on their own and accomplish on their own. There was this obstacle between God and man and sin. There's roadblocks. You ever come up to a roadblock and you get frustrated, don't you? You can't get through. How about when your sink gets backed up? How about when your toilet gets backed up? We put three new toilets in our house in the last year or so. And I'll tell you what, there's a problem with those. They're, they're new and they're great and all that, but they get stopped up too often. And it's frustrating. When there is blockage of anything, there is frustration. Obstructions need to be removed. One time I went to the doctor and I had this really big pain in my stomach. I said, oh, doctor, it hurts so bad. I don't know what to do. And he took an x-ray and he says, you have an obstruction in your bowels. So he gave me a little pill and it, it went away. It, it literally went away. But obstructions need to be removed. In verse 9, we read this. The outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. A symbol. The, word, the Greek word for symbol is uh, the word we, we get parable from. It's a parable. The, the tabernacle is a... The Levitical system is a parable, an object lesson that God is using to teach us something about what was to come about in Christ. 
And the significance of the tabernacle and what was in it was that gifts and sacrifices were offered continually that could not make the conscience clear. Could not affect the conscience. Now we've got to set this stage before we get to the, the answer. But you've got to see that they could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. The Greek word for perfect there doesn't mean sinless. So relax. It doesn't mean you have to be sinless. What it means is complete. When Jesus says you are to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect, he's not saying you are to be sinless but complete, meaning nothing else needs to be added for you to be who God intends you to be. It can't make you perfect in conscience. Nothing in the Levitical system dealt with the conscience. It all dealt with the outward cleansing. No ritual can ever clear the conscience. Only the working of the Holy Spirit through the word of God and the effective application of the blood of Christ can cleanse the conscience. The word for conscience that we find here, it was rarely used before 200 BC, but it is found in the New Testament uh, numerous times. It is also found in New Testament era writers. They spoke of the conscience. Conscience means the moral awareness of good and evil and assumes a moral obligation to do what is right. Now this outer tabernacle, the outer room of the tabernacle, illustrated the inner spiritual condition of the people. It was ultimately, it is ultimately the conscience that not any earthly space that keeps us from intimacy with God. More than any external requirements that dealt those days with washings or food and drink, or even today, things that we think make us right with God, things that we think we need to do to make us more right with God, they won't work. Think of the process we go through that is so much like this old process. Even when we are in Christ, when we are born again, we sin, um, and then we confess, and then we feel like we have to offer some gift to God as a sacrifice, and then we go on, and then we sin again, and then we confess, and we go on. And, and it's like we have to do something to make us feel better about our sin, and we feel like we have to work harder. And we feel like we have to earn our way back to God and earn our way back into his favor, even though we know the, the Bible doesn't teach us that we need to do that. We have this tendency to lack assurance of access to God, this tendency to lack assurance of forgiveness, even though it is assured in the word of God. It's not God's problem. It is the error in our uh, transmission. And um, the sacrificial systems are useless in this, kind of re- in this regard to cleanse the conscience. Mankind needed something more. A time of reformation was to come. Verse 10 tells us that these things have only to do with food and drink and various washings. They're regulations for the body. but They're imposed until a time of reformation will come. A time of reformation. And that's where we get to the third point. The third point is this. What God enables is reformation. Change. Uh, heart change. Romans chapter 12. When I was a brand new believer, I read Romans chapter 12 over and over and over again. I desperately wanted God to change my heart. And as I read this over and over and I got into the word, he did. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. And verse 2 says, and don't be conformed to this world. Don't let the world push you into its mold. 
but be transformed, completely changed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See, in the first 10 verses of Hebrews 9, the writer showed the significance of the old covenant as a type of what was to come. And now in verses 11 through 14, he shows that the new covenant did what the old covenant could not do, save a lost sinner. Change from the inside out. Give a clear conscience. It is only when our conscience is clear and purified that we are set free to approach God without reservation and offer Him acceptable service and worship. Reformation, the word means to make something crooked straight. It means to restore something to the normal condition that it was supposed to be in. And verse 11 shows us this time of reformation starting with the word but. But Christ, when Christ appeared. See, you stop at verse 10, it's not good. You go to verse 11 and you read a complete change. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. We'll see at verse 11, the good things have come. In him all the shadows give way to the perfect abiding reality. And his, pre- his entrance into the presence of God for us is not a day of affliction and fasting like the day of atonement was. It's a day of celebration. A day of celebrating what God has done in Christ. We celebrate an ascended king. And then verse 12 tells us that by his own blood he did this. On the day of atonement yearly, a goat was sacrificed for the sins of the people. A calf was sacrificed for the sins of the priest. But Jesus didn't bring either one of those when he went into the presence of God for us. He brought his own blood. He obtained then eternal redemption for us. When Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins, he fulfilled that whole sacrificial system. God then tore the inner veil. Remember when Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn in two? It was showing that the the division was no longer there. That the way to God was now open. Aren't we glad that we don't serve under that old sacrificial system where we are barred from entrance? Now the way is open into the presence of God uh, continuously. He made the two rooms one. No longer did we have to go within the veil. See, this was God's object lesson that the priesthood was over. That the temple was to be closed. That the new priest had appeared after the order of Melchizedek. But Israel, as we mentioned last week, repaired the veil and kept going with the temple. So God had to put an end to the temple himself by letting it be destroyed when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. The way into the Holy of Holies, heaven itself, the way into the presence of God was opened at the cross. And the writer did not want the Hebrew Christians that he was writing to to go back to the old. And God does not want us to try to cleanse our own consciences by our own efforts. Verse 13 and 14 tells us that the ashes of a heifer were sprinkled. What that was about was that they burned a red heifer outside the camp according to God's specific instructions. The ashes were mixed with water and sprinkled on those who had been defiled by being around a dead person or by, being, or by touching the corpse. We are defiled from our sins and Christ's blood effectively cleanses us from that sin. See, the impurity in those days was considered disqualification for getting into the presence of God. 
Our sin is our disqualification to get into the presence of God. But Jesus, it says, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, who offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse us? He, you had to offer a perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice had to be without defect in order to be a substitute for sinners. And so Jesus gives complete cleansing to the heart and the mind and the soul. He cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's good news for us. Good news because the answer is right here. You want to know how you get a clear conscience? How do you get a clean conscience? How do I do it? How do I do it? Well, here's how you do it. You come to Jesus. The earlier rituals of sacrifice were all external cleansing external purification the blood of christ cleanses our conscience um it does the very thing that it that old test the old covenant could not do jesus frees us from the inward sense of guilt that goes along with uh keeping us at a heart distance away from god we feel guilty so therefore we can't come to god when the very thing he wants us to do is to come to him um what does it mean to have a clear conscience it means accepting forgiveness Accepting forgiveness and living in light of it. Accepting God's forgiveness. There are some of you that you, you keep telling yourself you're not acceptable for the forgiveness. You you're not worthy of the forgiveness. When God says yes, I think that's, that's fear and pride, a mixture that, that keeps us from really wanting to appropriate the forgiveness. Something keeps us at a distance. God accepted us. We, it's it's, it's accepting forgiveness, living in light of it, and then it's because I've been forgiven, then I can forgive others and ask their forgiveness. I can go to others and ask their forgiveness. Hosea chapter 10 verse 12 says this. It says, break up your fallow ground. It's ground that was once fruitful, has been laid down, laid bare, and gotten hard, and it needs to be broken up before it can be useful again. The fallow ground of our lives is the parts of our lives that we have let go dormant and become hardened to God, become hardened to God's standards, and God wants to break that up. He's in the process then of breaking that up and helping us then to come back to Him again and again and again. It's, it's going and making it right. And I've told you some stories about times I've done that, but it's going, and if you don't have a clear conscience today... It might be because you have something wrong with so, you and someone else. And you need to confess it to God, but then go to that person and make it right. Even the person that you, that you can't stand and that you, your pride keeps you from even wanting to face them. That's what God wants you to do. What else does it mean? It means that because I'm reconciled to God, then I want to be right with other people as well. And because God accepted me, I want to live a life that pleases Him. That's, that's the, the impetus of for wanting to please God. But we've got a contemporary challenge we've all got to face. It's, it's two-pronged. Two but here's our contemporary challenge. A fuzzy view of morality and a misunderstanding of holiness. A fuzzy view of morality. Our society has one. A shaky moral compass. Redefine what is right and wrong all the time. The standard of truth lies with whoever is defining it. Uh, we pick and choose ideas that we want in our moral system. And popular choices are tolerance is right, exclusivity is wrong. Or um, free choice is right and restrictions on choice are wrong because we live in such a free choice society. But wrong takes the form of then not being true to yourself or of not being inclusive. And the lines become very fuzzy at best. 
Most people won't define their tendencies as sin. Therefore, they don't think they need any forgiveness. That would be an outdated idea for them. So we, we, we come up with words like this. I'm a good person. Uh, she's a moral person. And what we need to do is communicate. If it, in the spheres we operate, in our community, in the marketplace, uh, with people that we mix with that are not followers of Jesus... We have got to communicate a biblical view of morality that replaces the popular view if we want Christianity to speak to the culture. Pascal said this, there are only two kinds of people. The righteous who think they're sinners and sinners who think they're righteous. It's like the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like all those other people. Thank you, Lord, that I don't do what they do. And interestingly, many of us did that before we came to Christ, but we also do it after we came to Christ. See, it leads into what in the Christian community is a basic misunderstanding of what holiness means, what it means to live a holy life. We usually think of holiness in terms of what we don't do, what we stay away from. Uh, For example, a good Christian doesn't do blank, blank, blank. Or a good Christian would never do... And you just go fill in the blanks of whatever you think those things are. And then what happens is you impose them upon the people you're around. And I'll tell you something. Prohibitions are where we get legalistic. And no one likes to be around a legalistic person. You know you have friends that are more legalistic than you. And when you're around them, you've always got to be on your best behavior. Because otherwise, they'll get upset with you about something. Now, the knee-jerk reaction to legalism is licentiousness. Doing whatever we want just because we want, and God will forgive us. Both views are wrong. They're extremes to avoid. Uh, God is not a God of extremes. I I believe, uh, when I read the book, God is a God of balance. Uh, What I would want to call this, beautiful monotony. Beautiful monotony. Uh, Let me give you an example. I got five kids, so I've had ample time to play the little game where you put them on your knee and you say, uh, ride a little horsey, go to town, uptown, downtown, and then you open up, oops, fall down, and they fall and you catch them. And what do they say after the first time you do it? Again. uh, Or you throw them in the air, and then you catch them, and they say, again. My kids have said that to me so many times. Again, again, again. Now, it gets monotonous, but for them, it is beautiful monotony. They love that. It's, it's their world at that, at that point. And uh, is the beating of your heart monotonous? Is, is the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun every day monotonous? Uh, God has put in place beautiful monotony and it is actually a good thing, a gift. We don't need to go to the extremes. Sometimes we think, oh, that just means be boring. I'm not saying that. God, God does not... Uh, make a, doesn't want to make us uh, boring. Uh, but legalism, both views are wrong. Legalism is where de- we define standards of behavior, and if people conform to them, they must be right with God, as we assume it, and then we approve of them because they're one of us. Um, we put things on, the problem is we put things on our list that God doesn't put on the list. All of us do that, at some point or another. Uh, I, I was driving a car this week that, uh, it was a fancy car, uh, sought after sports car kind of car I didn't get a new car I was borrowing someone else's while they were on vacation they uh, allowed me to drive it and it, it's uh, much nicer than my car okay nothing wrong with that but I'll tell you something I got the wave uh, this week what happened was I, I pulled up I had the top down and I 
pulled up to a stop sign with my son in the car, and a guy in the exact same car pulled up to the stop sign and looked at us and gave the nod of approval and waved to us. And I was laughing because I said, I would never get that wave if I was driving my Suzuki XL7. But see, the wave, it was a knowing wave, a wave of approval. I was in the club. You know, it's good to have community standards. It is good to have standards, but we make judgment based on appearances. We know people by their fruits. Jesus said that. But we make judgment based on appearance, and God is the judge, not us. So what a, what a person wears or drives or says or does, and if we think they are appropriate or not, they will either receive or not receive our approval. Now, on the other hand, licentiousness. It's just as bad. It's defiant, rebellious, independent, anything goes. And both legalism and, and license exposes a prevalent problem among followers of Jesus. I do it all the time. Here's how A.W. Tozier put it. Much of our difficulty stems from our unwillingness to take God as he is. Much of our difficulty stems from our unwillingness to take God as he is and adjust our lives accordingly. We insist upon trying to modify him and bring him near to our image. See, we want to redefine God, and if we redefine God, we can move him closer to what we're like. And the Christian community does this versus taking God at his word and living according to his standard. So you've got twin issues here, sin and submission to the will of God that we are, have as, as an issue on a daily basis. But we must come to God daily on his terms, not ours. Wil- Wilbur Rees wrote a little uh, piece that was sarcastic uh, of those who do not want too much of God for fear that things might change too much. He said this, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to expo- explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant worker. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Let me close this by saying this. Christ can cleanse our conscience. Christ cleansed our conscience when we came to him. But then we get a little bit filthy along the way as well. And sometimes we get to the point where the conscience is really needing an overhaul. And other times it's just the daily repentance and confession. But I will tell you this. uh, We can't just buy $3 worth of God to get the clean conscience. It costs us our life. I was talking to one of our military men here the other day, and he had his really nice outfit on. And I said, wow, that's a sharp-looking uniform. He said, well, it was free. And I joked with him, and I said, actually, it cost you your life. Putting on that uniform cost you your life. Saying yes to join the service cost you your whole life, and they gave you a free uniform to boot. A clear conscience, the ability to rest, the ability to sleep at night, to be at ease, uh, to know that all is well with you and God and others and therefore able to serve God unreservedly. reservedly. Cleansing for the conscience and confidence to draw near to God are available in Christ. And God gives us assurance, not hesitancy in his presence, not hesitancy in our relationship with him or with other people. Confidence to come boldly to the throne of grace. Freedom to serve him with no barriers. 
Christ frees us to serve him in spirit and in truth. Therefore, we can give up those practices and attitudes that belong to the way of death because the truth sets us free and brings us out of death and into life in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for this day and I thank you for your word. I thank you that you uh, are the one that applies it to our hearts and our lives. And Lord, I just pray for anyone in this room right now who is who is bearing and carrying a weight uh, of a burden that you have already taken. And I pray, Lord, that they would give it to you even right now, just to give it over to you, knowing that they have confessed their sins, knowing that they have uh, repented and turned from their sins, and that you have forgiven them. Assure their hearts, Lord, that they are forgiven. Lord, we know that the torment of our past sins does not come from you, but from Satan. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us victory over that. And I also pray for any among us who may, may have come into a place uh, even unknowingly where they are now hardened in their conscience. I pray, Lord, you'd break through by your fatherly love. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.